0: FMR
1: 101.3 People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. Fine Music Radio, and this is Rodney Trudgeon inviting you to this week's edition of People of Note, which, among other things, has a decidedly nautical feel. If you're one of the people who've been lucky enough to buy the Ship Society calendars over the years, You, like me, might be amazed at the beautiful paintings of the various ships, be they Union Castle ships, warships, tugs, that appear on the, the calendar of the Ship Society. So I wanted to find out more about the man who painted them and what his love of the sea is and of music and of other things and so discovered a whole lot about him and I invited him into the studio. And I'm talking about Jeremy Day, whose paintings are quite extraordinary for the ship society and each one <laughs> for example let me tell you one of my favorites is the RMS St. Helena, which has a special thing for me uh, this year this year 2020 is HMS Vanguard in 1947 bringing the queen and king and taking them out again so Jeremy welcome indeed it's great to have you here in real life
2: Thank you very much, Rodney. It's a great privilege.
1: And may I ask you what this year's one coming, the 2021, I've seen it, but I want you to tell me about it.
2: Well, it's the 80th anniversary of a very, very difficult time next year um, in matters marine when many ships were lost and a lot of capital ships from all of the nations at war, uh, with the exception of Japan. And during that time, the um, HMS Prince of Wales came to Cape Town in November 1941 on her way to the Far East where she was going to join the um, HMS Repulse. And she stopped off in Cape Town for a few days and had some of her armaments adjusted and improved. And that was early November. And then on the 10th of December, the following month, she and the Repulse were actually lost in action in the Far East with heavy loss of life. Mm-hmm. And I thought that doing a painting with Table Mountain in the background is always popular with people looking at uh, paintings of ships, especially in the Cape. So I've got this this ominous-looking gray battleship in its uh, camouflage, camouflage, it's camouflage with a very soft background of Table Mountain in the early morning mists.
1: Mm-hmm. What amazes me, Jeremy, and I mentioned the Orimus St. Helena, which you've painted at Jamestown uh, in St. Helena, but things like the Vanguard, how do you get all those details? It's, I love the people you have standing on the quay, uh, even with little signs written on their back and the chaps on a bicycle. Yeah. Is this all your imagination or are you taking it from a photograph?
2: Well, yes, I use photographs because, obviously, um, I wasn't there at the time. Yes, of course, of course. (laughs) And um, these photographs are all in the public domain, but I have actually got permission from um, Transnet National Maritime Museum Mm -hmm. to paint any of the uh, images that are available. And it requires quite a bit of research to find out what the weather was like in those days, um, what other ships were in the harbour, for instance, because oh, yes. you have what I call the rivet counters, and if you get <laughs> something wrong, they pounce on you and say, "Oh, ah, that's wrong,
1: yeah, yeah, I'm sure."
2: <laughs> so I try and make it as accurate as possible,
1: and yet keeping the essential feel of the key those days that we could actually go down and stand at a berth, for example, and watch the mail ships or the warships leaving.
2: Correct. Arriving. In fact, with the HMS Vanguard leaving in 1947, uh, on this year's calendar, you'll notice that they're all climbing up the cranes to yes. get a, <laughs> yes, a better yes. bird's eye view. Right. So
1: And uh, lovely pictures of the cranes as well. The detail is amazing. So although you're using photographs, the way, what can I say, you've sort of exploded, expanded it to make it really come alive. Quite right. And with soft colors of the mountain, the cloud formations that we know so well, if there's a southeaster, you've got it there.
2: Well, the Southeaster, with the tablecloth coming over Table Mountain, is Mm -hmm. a challenge for all artists, because the tablecloth is actually a very unusual vision of of clouds coming over, and a lot of artists have attempted it, and it just looks like a a big bale of cotton coming (laughs) over the mountain. So the challenge is actually to make it look real, and... um, for my sins, I think I've managed to get it quite
1: <laughs> I think fairly accurate. I think you have. And also, um, Jeremy, things like the water, because I'm, uh, you know, I hope that our chat about this will get people to go and buy these calendars, which helps the ship society. Um, the texture in the water, for example, is another thing I would think is quite difficult.
2: I'm fascinated by water, and I'm also fascinated by rocks. Hmm. Um, where I have paintings where there is water... I have a little trademark that I put in my paintings, and that is a water lily.
1: Oh, really? Yes, uh, it's, I it's hidden to, I there. Have, uh, <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I okay, seen it yet. well, okay. it's there,
2: and I promise you, you will find it if you probably get out a magnifying glass or something.
1: Okay. But there was one calendar, I think, two or three years ago, and I can't remember the details... Where the sea was particularly rough. I think it was a tug going to help a, a stricken ship.
2: That was the Volrod Voltemada ah, with that abortive attempt to salvage the Antipolis, which went aground at um, just opposite the, well, what is now the uh, Twelve Apostles Hotel. Mm-hmm. And um, that was that was quite an event, really, because she was going to try and and grab her the, the tow line by the tail and so drag her off. Yes. But unfortunately, the volrad Voltamada bottomed when she got close and split her fuel tanks and oh, she had goodness. to disengage and go back. Yeah. And um, one of the engines was actually put out of alignment and she needed very expensive repairs. I think heads rolled after that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure. But I mean, the water, the rough water you depicted there was really quite extraordinary. Anyway, we in radio, which is... Well, you mentioned that earlier as well, Jeremy, Theatre of the Mind. Yes. But these paintings, to, if people have missed them, these paintings that have been on the ship's calendar, can people see them anywhere without having bought the calendar?
2: Yes. In fact, um, the one that you mentioned of the RMS Helena has just mm. been gifted back to me by the purchaser, who's uh, my aunt. <laughs> right. And uh, she actually came to the launch of that calendar because she's been to St. Helena quite a few times, and Mm. she regaled us with stories of all the goings-on on on board ship. Yes. And most of the people were on the edge of their seat (laughs) (laughs) in her inimitable way of telling the story. We, I've been twice to
1: St. Helena on that ship, both times as a fine music radio music tour, and it really is an extraordinary ship. And I love the way you've got the light. You've, you've filmed it, I th- you painted it sort of in the early evening, I think, or in morning. Correct.
2: It's called St. Helena Dusk, ah. which is, quite frankly, the, the end of the era of. The St. Helena, which was sold off Mm, and uh, the service was discontinued.
1: Yes. Jeremy, now I gather music is important to you, so I'm intrigued to hear what you, as a painter of ships and other things, has chosen. What's our first piece of music going to be?
2: The first one is the theme from Twin Peaks. Oh, yes. Which is a, a rather unusual piece of work, and when I see Nick Syro at the gym every now and again. Uh, We have a chat, and uh, some years back I said to him, You know, you have this tune that you play, The Wild Card. Why don't you give this a shot? And he said, Oh, that's an idea. And I actually brought him a CD of it, and apparently it's a favorite now on Winding Down.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, here it is the theme from that television series, Twin Peaks. Theme from that television series called Twin Peaks. I wonder if you remember it. And it was the first choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, Jeremy Day, who caught my attention with all the paintings he's done for the Ship Society and their calendars each year. And I'm the proud owner, Jeremy, may I say, of a number of them. Now, let's just go a little bit into your background, because in fact, it was a Union Castle ship that brought you out here, wasn't it? A Stirling Castle? Because you were born in England. Just tell me how you ended up on our shores.
2: Well, as I mentioned before, um, when we were talking earlier, my father was a South African-born pilot Mm -hmm. uh, in the RAF. And uh, when he was lost in action, my mother decided to see my aunt off back to South Africa down at South Africa House. And in those days, South Africa was looking for people to come to the shores Mm. and Seeing off my aunt, the lady at the uh, South African embassy, I suppose it was called, said to my mother, "Uh, oh, are you also going to South Africa? She said, oh, no, 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 I can't afford to go anywhere. She said, well, if we pay for you, would you go? And she said, like a shot. Wow. And my mother was very, very adventurous. Um, So off we went on the Stirling Castle in 1946 arrived in South Africa, and stayed in Gordons Bay for a while. Mm -hmm. And I can still remember sitting on the beach with my mother at the age of one and a half and her hiding toys away from me in the sand. (laughs) Yes. And then one day I lost a toy and I said, where did you hide that toy, knowing that it was gone. Yeah. But anyway. that's.
1: But why did they pay for people to come out here? Were they, Was South it, Africa that desperate?
2: Um, I think it was very similar to what they had in Australia. You know, the 10-pounders. They used to oh, say, yes, you know, yes. you come to Australia, uh, we'll give you 10 pounds and uh, you can settle here. Uh, the same as what happened in America at the beginning of the 20th century when all the immigrants went from Europe to the States. mm mm-hmm. So I think that was uh, what they were trying to achieve in those days. Okay. And I'm very grateful because I love Cape Town. I, I can't <laughs> have you, imagine. Have you
1: lived here ever since? Yes. So, and yes. it seems to me that you, well, you say here I started drawing as soon as I was able to hold a pencil. So that's been sort of born into you almost. The, correct. the desire to draw.
2: Quite correct. And I've had, I've been very lucky in that I've had family and friends who've supported me in that area. And, um, it's actually it's the beginning of an art-based career. And uh, I started doing work for money when I was 15 years old for a narrow fabrics company in Salt River where the rep used to go and sell batches of these woven labels. But they had to see a sketch of it first in its actual size. And it meant painting with a brush of all the different colors of the labels it had to be one hundred percent accurate with lettering one and a half millimeters high, which I managed to master after a couple. The first few were rejected, but once that I started getting into it, then I was doing plenty of them mm-hmm. Are you f-
1: talking about the little labels, for example, at clothing, the back of your yes, shirt clothing correct. labels
2: that 's right oh. and I was paid the princely sum of two rand per label, which in one thousand nine hundred and sixty for a 15 year old was a lot of money. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: I saved all that money, and by the time I went to art school in 1965, I was able to put myself through art school. Uh, the British government, because my father had been lost in action, paid for my tuition fees, and I was able to pay for all my materials, as well as indulging in my other interests, which is motorcycles.
1: Ah, yes, I'm coming to that, <laughs> which is quite a contrast <laughs> from sitting painting. But talking about motorcycles, there is your interest in mechanical things, which began on a tug, which I think was quite a famous tug back in the 1950s, yes, that Smoky was the Smoky Sue.
2: that's right, the old T.S. McEwen. It was a school outing to the tug, and we brought in the, I think it was the Richmond Castle, And they asked us if any of us wanted to go down into the engine room. And, of course, I'm always inquisitive and Mm -hmm. curious. I said, yes, definitely. It was the most amazing experience because in this engine room with this massive reciprocating steam engine, Mm -hmm. you couldn't hear yourself think. But the engineers were talking to each other like we are talking together. And I don't know if they were lip-reading but they probably managed to shut that noise out. Yes. And they weren't wearing any protective gear.
1: I was lucky enough to go down into an engine room of a big ocean liner, the Queen Victoria it was called in those days. Goodness. And it's shatteringly loud. So we were given, we were given earmuffs, earmuffs yes, because it is, it is unbelievably loud.
2: Well, I'm sure all those engineers must have been stone deaf by the <laughs> age of 40. <laughs> yes.
1: So that little trip in 1955, was that your interest not only in mechanical things but in ships? Yes, tugs.
2: yes, yes, definitely.
1: And then when did you paint your first ship? Can you remember?
2: I went to Cock Bay Harbor and painted the, uh, the fishing boats in 1959. And sometime after that, I saw the, um, the film A Night to Remember mm, the first about the Titanic, Titanic. And I was song, yeah. absolutely riveted by these, this four funnel liner. Mm. And that's when I decided I wanted to paint the four funnel liners.
1: And did you ever paint the Titanic?
2: I did. I've painted the Titanic. Um, there are a few cards here with the Titanic on them. And her sister ships, the Britannic and the Olympic. Mm-hmm. And I actually studied the Titanic, and uh, I've given talks on her. Mm-hmm. And I actually concentrate on, on a different aspect of the Titanic. You know, everybody knows about the, the terrible loss of life. But I think the mechanical side to the Titanic is just as interesting. Mm,
1: It's fascinating and um, that film, A Night to Remember um, after all the fuss of the main film, Titanic, James Cameron's film with Leonardo DiCaprio to go back and see that film makes you realise what a remarkable film it actually was and of course it was more Real, wasn't it? Because there wasn't the love story and all that.
2: That's quite right. And a lot of facts actually came out after that about the Titanic breaking in two mm-hmm. and landing up in two separate pieces on the bottom of the ocean. Because
1: when that film came out, they didn't know that. That's they didn't right. know it had split in two. There was
2: talk about it, but oh, yeah. there was no proof as such. Yes.
1: Right, well now, from uh, the nautical world to the musical world, and music is important to you, and I'm going to find out more about that now with your
2: next choice. Well, in the late 1960s, uh, one of the Beatles songs, uh, Maxwell's Silver Hammer, had oh, a very gosh. interesting instrument in the background, which was the Moog synthesizer. Mm. And mentioning this to a friend of mine, he said, well, how about this? And he gave me this LP called Switched on Bach by Walter Carlos, which is the Bach music performed with a Moog synthesizer, and I would like to play one of the Brandenburg concertos. And, um, On
1: the Moog synthesizer. This was a very famous album when it came out, when? In the 60s? In the
2: late, late 60s, about 69 yeah. it came out, yeah. and it immediately triggered my interest in classical music.
1: extraordinary arrangement on the Moog synthesizer by Walter Carlos, Wendy Carlos, Walter Carlos. And um, it was the choice, the second choice of my guest on People of Note this week here on Fine Music Radio, the artist Jeremy Day, whose wonderful paintings of the ships you can buy on the calendars from the Ship Society. But you mentioned your fascination with mechanical things, Jeremy, and the motorcycle. This seems to be uh, been a very Important part of your life—the love of motorcycles.
2: Yes, Rodney. I think every teenager would like to have had a buzz bike when they. <laughs> it's a buzz bike. And uh, but my my family couldn't afford that. However, I had the wherewithal from all my sketches that I was painting for the labels, and by 1965, the first year of art school, I managed to purchase my first motorcycle, which wasn't a buzz bike. It was a 500cc British AJS twin. Mm-hmm. Uh, in running order for 35 rand. Good grief,
1: you're joking. 35 rand.
2: 35 rand in those days, yes. And (laughs) um, then subsequent to that, I'd actually purchased, built, raced, and sold seven motorbikes before I left (laughs) art school. (laughs) And thanks to those labels. And now? (laughs) And now I still have a motorcycle. I'm still very entrenched in the motorcycle um, fraternity. I've had over 100 motorcycles in the last 55 years. Um, I used to restore them. And I decided about 10 years ago that I would actually forego that and rather concentrate on creating artwork. Mm -hmm. That was more of a challenge.
1: Right, right. Well... With the motorcycle thing and your love of mechanics and your trip on the tug, one of the other things, although I'm going to embarrass you now by saying it's taken years to do, you're building a tug, aren't you? Correct. Which one is that now?
2: That's the, the last steam tug that arrived in Cape Town, the Donny Hugo. And it's it's been a sort of a love-hate relationship since 1970 when I first photographed it. And every year I used to go down and visit this tug when she was laid up in the Robinson dock, and take as many photographs as I could. I even climbed underneath it at one stage. Oh, now you can't do that anymore because you're restricted. Mm. But um, I'm actually trying to finish it off by the end of this year. It's and when did you start? 1970. <laughs> I call it you my see. PhD, a project half done.
1: Oh, right, okay. And what sort of size is it? What sort of scale?
2: It's about 1.3 meters long
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it's as accurate as I could possibly make it. I have the original plans uh, of the, uh, the shipbuilders plans for the tug, which was built by a company called Ferguson in Scotland. And it arrived in Cape Town in 1959. And interestingly enough, it went up to Southwest Africa or Namibia in 1984 and was scrapped there. But... They retained the bridge, and in Kitman's Hoop, at the end of the quay, they've got the superstructure there, and it's now a coffee shop called <laughs> Tugs, of course.
1: <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> what happened to the – we were talking about the Volrod Voltemard or the, those iconic Tugs that we used to see. Were they just scrapped, taken away in scrap?
2: No, the, the John Ross is still in operation performing very, very essential uh, work around the coast here, and those were the, the most powerful tugs in the world when mm. they were built in the mid-70s. But um, the Volrad Volta was a very busy tug, and by 2010, she was absolutely worn out. And she was sold, and apparently she was drawn up on a beach and cut up into pieces in India, which was very sad, mm. but she'd done a time, and I have very fond memories of her. And there is a book by one of the masters called A Tug at My Heart, yes, which he talks about the uh, the Volrod Voltamada. And the Volrod Voltamada is the name of that very famous South African who went into the sea at Salt River yes, yes, and yes, rescued about and rescue, yeah. 10 people before he horse. succumbed, his horse, and uh, he succumbed, unfortunately.
1: That uh, tug, the one that you've got here, which is the… That's the Donnie Hugo. The Donnie Hugo. You've painted onto a whole lot of little cards. And I want you to tell me about these because you've brought in a collection. These are greeting cards, aren't they? But with no message, you can write your own message. Yes, that's
2: right. They're uh, blank for your own personal message. And I also have gift tags which are smaller versions of these, but with a little hole in it that you can put around a bottle of wine when you go out Oh, yes, go. yes.
1: But they're not all, I see these cards that you brought in, they're not all about ships, although there's this lovely ocean liner, the RMS Arundel Castle. But then there's a thing of a packet of groceries, and you do speak about realism, to pursue realism with a paintbrush. And is this an example of your pursuing realism?
2: Quite right. Yes, it is. And um, I actually enjoy doing this realism. It takes quite a lot of time. Um, because it
1: looks like a photograph. If, if you yes, know. I
2: know. Um, <laughs> I
1: mean, look at the, the, the plastic bags. That's a Coca-Cola and tomato sauce and sugar and jungle oats.
2: Yes, um, I, I love painting detail, and people say, you must be crazy. Have you got a therapist? And I say, no, I've got a big bottle of patience, <laughs> which I use.
1: <laughs> right. And are these cards available to yes, people?
2: Yes, they are. They're going at very special price. They go for a price of 20 Rand each or uh, 6 for the price of 5. And, and where do you get them? They can just contact me. I've, You know, I often uh, exhibit them at uh, exhibitions, but... Uh, They are available for me.
1: Well, we'll get all your details towards the end of the program. But it's time now for your third piece of music.
2: Well, the third piece of music is, as I mentioned, the Bach introduced me to classical music, and one of my favourites is Mozart for a number of reasons. First of all, I always believe everybody um, is endowed with a creative payload. And it's up to us individually to unpack those little boxes in that payload. And I think Mozart did that at a very, very young age. And from what I've heard, his music, his musical scores, do not have any corrections whatsoever. It just came out of his head onto the paper, and that was it. And I've heard that it would take four musical experts to write his music over their lives. Mm. And he died at the age of, was it 31? He was prolific, but I love his music too. And the next piece of music is the Concerto Number 27 in B-flat major, and it's the Allegro.
1: The last movement. Yes. Now, is there a reason that you've chosen this one? It was the last concerto he wrote, and some people think there's a kind of world weariness to it, but you say you enjoy the flow, and even when you're painting.
2: It has a lovely, soothing effect when you're putting paint on a canvas, and it just sort of flows and helps me in my creative process. It's almost predictable, once you get used to the the music and you keep playing it time and time again, it has a predictability which you look forward to hearing, and it just satisfies me completely.
1: That's part of the last piano concerto Mozart wrote number 27, the last movement there, and the soloist Murray Pariah with the English Chamber Orchestra, a choice of my guest, Jeremy Day. And we've been talking about painting and cards and motorbikes and tugs. But amidst all this, Jeremy, you the other string to your bow is as a copywriter, which you learned your trade, didn't you, at the Cape Times. Copywriting is quite a passion for you as well as painting,
2: that's right, Rodney. In fact, uh, at the Cape Times, I was involved in creating adverts for the customers of the Cape Times. And with me at the time was an, uh, a friend of mine called Daryl Fine. And we had this friendly rivalry mm-hmm. in trying to outdo each other with advertising campaigns. And that's where I discovered that I had a, a knack for writing uh, witty or punny Headlines oh, really? and the customers that I did work for actually identified this, and uh, they actually encouraged me to go out on my own and start my own business. And they would support me, and that's how I actually started in 1975.
1: And is that business still running?
2: It is. I still. It's not very similar to what it was in the old days, but I hmm. still do a lot of print broking and uh, graphic design work which is all on computer now, as you must guess. Yes. But uh, I still enjoy it. So I haven't let that go yet because it's, it's just part of uh, what I love doing. Now,
1: copywriters, well, headline writers, are really quite specialized people. And you told me something that surprised me, is that because of your love of words, very often you come up with the title of the painting before you do the painting.
2: That's quite right.
1: How is that possible?
2: <laughs> That's quite right. In fact, one of them is uh, the sobriquet... And that depicts the flower seller from Adderley Street posing in an amusing attitude in front of the statue of Queen Victoria. And she's got a, a sponsbeck and uh, Watsonia's in place of the, the orb and the mace.
1: Oh, I see. It's just struck me now. I'm looking at this painting as we speak. But there's another painting that surprises me, and it's very difficult doing this on radio, my say, Jeremy, because people can't see what we're talking about. There's a picture which looks as though it's in the main street of Cape Town, and there's a policeman writing out a ticket for a priest. What is that all about?
2: Well, the And you've
1: called it Fine Art Mea Culpa.
2: Yes. Um, I've always thought, that I'd like to uh, create a painting around a phrase which is often uh, quite popular. And the word fine art is bandied about quite a lot. Mm. And about 30 or 40 years ago, I remember seeing this traffic officer on duty and I thought, if ever I paint a traffic officer, this is my quintessential traffic officer. And about four years ago, I decided to attempt this painting called Fine Art and I attached I actually approached Rodney Rodney Ford who's now retired obviously and he was delighted he put on his uniform and showed me the motorcycle that he has with its uh, blue light and still has its siren Mm
0: -hmm.
2: (laughs) and I took those photographs and then I went to the priest just up the road Father Terry and asked him if he would pose and here Father Terry who normally would be hearing the confessions of those in his congregation is now asking forgiveness from the traffic officer,
1: oh, I see. <laughs> and that's the the nub of the painting.
2: And Rodney's expression is a true sort of nondescript, poker-faced expression of a traffic officer
1: who's heard it all he's before. He's heard
2: it a million <laughs> times before, but he's, he hasn't started writing yet. And the intrigue is: Did he write the ticket or didn't he?
1: and the priest looks as though he really is imploring uh, <laughs> forgiveness from <laughs> I it. don't
2: know what he's just done to deserve <laughs> that but anyway it it actually has been a very popular painting and Rodney is actually in spite of the way he looks there he's a gentle soul and he was part of the toy run for 30 years doing all the uh, admin work for them mm-hmm. and the toy run provides uh kids at the end of the year who don't have anything with with toys that all the motorcyclists donate Mm -hmm. every year just before Christmas.
1: Let's see if we can fit in another piece of music.
2: Right. um, What I'd like to do is I'd like to ask the listeners to sit back and imagine this piece of work as an artist who is trying to achieve a painting in three-odd minutes. He's got his brush loaded with paint and the canvas has all been mapped out and it's a flurry of action because he has to move quickly. And this particular (laughs) tune, to me, whenever I hear it, it sounds like an artist in an absolute flurry, hands flailing, trying to get the stuff finished in time. And it's Rossini's William Tell Tell known as the
1: Lone Ranger. So you've put quite a different spin on it now as opposed to the Lone Ranger, a painter with a paintbrush, frantically trying to get his painting finished.
2: Yes, and just think of it when, say, about halfway through to the end, of all those dabs of music. Think of those as paint sploshes going on (laughs) a canvas.
1: Okay, that's a new take on this. took a different take on the William Tell overture, the gallop at the end and imagining a painter frantically trying to finish his painting (laughs) there in that three minutes. (laughs) A different take on that piece from my guest, Jeremy Day. Jeremy, we're nearing the end of the program. We've spoken a lot about your paintings, about your cards. But there's one rather special thing here. and You've brought in a copy. Two very attractive people in war dress, a turntable and two Spitfires. And I know this is a special story for you to share with us before I let you go.
2: Yes, Rodney, it's called Bow Fighters because they're both very handsome-looking people. And um, the one is actually a, uh, a Spitfire and the other one's a bowfighter. fighter. Okay. And Sylvia, at the age of 22 in 1945, was a radar tuner in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Right. And on one occasion a radio message came in from a Spitfire pilot who had been shot up in action and was on on his way back, but he couldn't see what was happening because there was oil coming from his motor onto his windscreen. And so they patched his radio through to Sylvia, who managed to find him on radar, and uh, she guided him to the nearest landing strip and saved his life, uh, after which he came into the ops room and thanked her for that. Her husband, Michael, was a 23-year-old bowfighter pilot and uh, he was attached to 144 Squadron which was the um, Coastal Command Squadron and was involved in engagements with the enemy in the uh, English Channel and on the 11th of January 1945 he and his best friend Jack Rodders who was his navigator were lost in action that was a day after his third anniversary but before that Six days prior to that, that incident, he'd received a letter from Sylvia mentioning that she was pregnant with me.
1: <laughs> really? Gosh. And so this, so
2: this is uh, really a, uh, a 75th anniversary painting of the end of the war, but also a message of sadness, of loss and of hope. And um, it's got a record player at the bottom where the needle is burning into the wax and creating slivers of plastic which whirl up around, across both of the people with and create the words, we'll meet again. And this is actually very uh, pertinent now with the coronavirus because so many people haven't been able to see each other. So this is actually a dedication to them as well. And... um, as you can see in the painting, We'll Meet Again is a very interesting song which was sung during the war and I'm sure must have been heard by many servicemen by Vera Lynn. Mm. And this is my last choice of music.
1: Okay, well, don't go away yet because we want to find out I some think, details. Yeah.
0: We'll
3: meet again Again, don't know where, don't know where, but I.
1: inimitable Virulin there and that famous song, We'll Meet Again, ending people of note this week with my guest Jeremy Day. But before you go, Jeremy, thank you for sharing lovely memories with us and his lovely paintings. How do people get hold of you? How do we get to see these paintings?
2: Well, they can go to my uh, website, which is artistjeremyday.com
1: Artistjeremyday.com
2: One word, yes. And they can go onto my Facebook page under Jeremy Day. And um, my email address, which is jerryday at za.
1: Well, there we are. We can all contact you as a result. Thank you for sharing wonderful stories and wonderful pictures with it's,
2: us. It's been my pleasure, Rodney, and thanks so much for having me.
1: And go and have a look, I'm telling our listeners here, at the new calendar. You can get it from the Ship Society uh, with the Prince of Wales on it in her a camouflage, a rather magnificent calendar. Thank you, Jeremy.
2: Thank you, Rodney.
1: People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.
0: FMR 101.3